Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Before we get started today, I want to thank everyone who came out to our WDET Book Club kickoff event yesterday at 6 p.m. at uh, Source Booksellers in Midtown Detroit. We had a good crowd. We had a good discussion about the book that we're featuring this summer, What the Eyes Don't See, by Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha who uh, uncovered the Flint water crisis. Uh, We also would love uh, if people would stay involved with this book club all summer. There are lots of ways to get involved. You can come to the many events that we are going to hold around the metro area this summer. Uh, You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, of course, and talk with us about it there. And you can join the WDET book club on Facebook. Uh, You just go to our Facebook page. Uh, and uh, and you can find it there. So again, thanks very much to everyone who turned out. Thanks to the folks at Source Booksellers who have been so, so supportive of this idea of the book club both last year uh, and this year. And we look forward to more discussion about the book and water issues here in Southeast Michigan all summer long. All right. Late last week, President Trump said the United States was just minutes away from a military strike against Iran. The president says our forces were, quote, cocked and loaded, and that the strike would have been retaliation against Iran for shooting down a U.S. drone. The attack was called off, he said, because of concerns about casualties. But think of it this way. Iran is a country with which the United States has had a tense and complicated history for a really long time. And even at the height of the hostage crisis in the late 1970s, This country has never been so close to war with Iran as it seems to be now. Why is that so? What is so urgent about this moment in relations between the countries that war could be so close at hand? That's where we begin the conversation today, talking about Iran and the United States and the deteriorating relationship between the two countries. And I've got two people here who are real experts on what is going on to help shed light on what is going on. Peter Trumbor is a professor of political science at Oakland University. Peter, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, good morning, Stephen. Yes, you are also the chair of the political science department. Yes, there, I am. Right? Yes. <laughs> uh, an ignominious duty, correct? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> That's right. Uh, also with us is uh, Saeed Khan, who's a, se- a senior lecturer of Near and Middle East History and Politics at Wayne State University. Saeed, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thank you for having me back on. So I want to start here. How close were we to full-scale war with Iran late last week? Peter, I'll I'll, I'll put that question to you first. Uh, I don't think all that close, actually. I think there have been earlier periods in our relationship with Iran when things were a lot worse. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the 1980s, the tanker war, which was an episode that happens during the Iran-Iraq war, uh, in which uh, tankers were being targeted in the Gulf first by the by the Iraqis and then by the Iranians, we end up reflagging uh, foreign tankers as American. We provide convoy security for them. This was an episode that involved uh, both naval action. Uh, we had special forces on the ground. We launched military strikes against Iranian targets. We accidentally shot down an Iranian civilian airliner. So things were tense last week. Mm-hmm. But things have been worse. They weren't that. They, they weren't, weren't that, that bad yet. Yeah. You know. So I think that now the question is: Did we did we dodge a bullet last week? It really depends upon how much. I don't want to use the word trust, but how much you believe Donald Trump's timeline. Yeah. And and so uh, 
Now, that's not to say that we're not in, in treacherous waters right now, but I think we do need to, with everything, make sure we keep things both in context and perspective. Huh. So. Uh, uh, Saeed, uh, same question to you. How close were we to a war with Iran based on what the president says happened last week? Well, I think I, uh, given what Peter says, I fully agree, uh, provided that we're operating under the same paradigm and metrics of, uh, of a U.S. government and the policy procedures and, and substance that it wants to purvey. Given the mercurial nature of, of this president and given the fact that it is very difficult to see exactly how the chain of command really operates, whether there are uh, sufficient circuit breakers uh, involved, uh, I'm not really so confident that we can say that uh, uh, we we were, say, a DEFCON 3 compared to a DEFCON 1 uh, when it comes to it. From what I understand, uh, it seems as though, uh, and this is not exactly a, a closely guarded secret, uh, the president uh, takes his advice from a very select group of uh, of advisors, one of whom appears to be uh, uh, President Vladimir Putin in Russia. Mm. Uh, and it is now being reported that Russia had evidence showing that the United States drone had, in fact, violated Iranian airspace, which, of course, then would change the dynamics of what would be uh, the predicate for uh, for military conflict completely. Uh, the U.S. position has been that uh, the Iranians fired and shot down the drone over international airspace. Uh, I don't know how then uh, Iran was able to show on video uh, wreckage and debris of said drone if it just simply landed into the uh, the Persian Gulf. But be that as it may, it seems as though Someone got to the president, and uh, what seems to be perhaps a little bit more pessimistic is it may not have been somebody within the Beltway. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so this idea of what happened last week and what it really is about, I think, can't be discussed without discussing you know, the president's um, bluster, I let, let's call it, the idea that this is somebody who often says things as a way of trying to cast himself in, in a particular light. And uh, facts aren't always uh, associated with, with that light. Uh, do we think that this is about flexing some muscle? Do we think this is about trying to appear tough uh, on, on Iran? And if that's so, why is, it, why is that happening now? What is it about right now that makes the president feel as though he's got to do these kinds of things, Peter? Um, so what's happening now? I, I think we, we need to sort of, if you roll the clock back to, to May of 2018, when uh, President Trump makes the decision to pull the U.S. out of the international agreement to limit uh, Iran's nuclear arms development program, um, that sets into chain a, a motion of policy decisions, right? Sets in motion this chain of policy decisions that includes the, the, the re-imposition of very harsh economic sanctions against Iran by the United States, which we have then also sought to enforce on others that do business with Iran. And, and these now have, have had an impact on more than 80% of the Iranian economy. Uh, the, the value of the Iranian currency 
has uh, has essentially crashed. the 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 economy is in is in a shambles. Um, this has increased the incentive for the Iranians, I think, to do to do two things. One of those is to finally stop abiding by the terms of that earlier agreement, which they had been following up until this point, and, and now they are poised to, to take the first sort of major step outside of that framework. But it also has given them incentive to try to, to force the United States in some ways, either to back off or to come back to the table. And they have limited means in which to do this. Uh, one of the few ways that they can do this is by engaging in these uh, somewhat low-level displays of, of military force of their own, whether that is engaging in attacks on shipping um, through the, the Strait of Hormuz and the Gulf of Oman, or um, what we would see as more provocative, which is actually targeting an American uh, unmanned drone. Mm. Right. So, in other words, this is a, a game of... Of, of pressure coming from both sides, trying to leverage both sides in, in their own particular ways back to the negotiating table to try to get an overall reduction. And, and that's always going to be the risk, right? That the more pressure you try to bring to bear, the, the higher the risk becomes. Because now you've got to try to figure out how is the, how is the other side going to respond to the actions that you've taken. Yeah. So and if we sort of think about how do wars happen, they tend to happen through these processes of escalation. They aren't necessarily predetermined that on, on date X, this is when the war is going to start. Right. It tends to be an incremental process of ratcheting pressure, ratcheting tension, increasingly provocative action until either someone makes the, the definitive policy decision that now we have to go or someone makes a miscalculation and things get out of control. Yeah, uh, Saeed, I wonder if you can talk about what we think the goal is with U.S. policy uh, with regard to Iran. Uh, is it to uh, sort of prop them up as uh, you know uh, an unlikable enemy and and use that as a way to, to try to you know whip up public sentiment in this country or is there a policy outcome that we'd like to see that's even uh, maybe achievable in Iran that uh, we think the the sanctions and the the sort of brinkmanship with with military action could actually uh, accomplish Iran has been uh, the pariah for the United States uh, for the last 40 years. Now, part of that, of course, is is justifiable given the uh, the taking of the U.S. embassy in Tehran, uh, the taking of uh, American hostages for 444 days. Uh, but American foreign policy should never be uh, dictated and determined solely by these uh, emotional spasms. Uh, Iran is, whether we like it or not, uh, a major regional force, uh, not only in its population size, but also when it comes to its natural resources like petroleum. And uh, uh, another uh, very important and critical factor, that is its geography. Uh, not only does it have proximity to Russia, but uh, with China's uh, new Belt and Road Initiative essentially resurrecting the Silk Road, uh, Iran is going to be a pivotal conduit within that, uh, that particular pathway that goes all the way from Beijing to Rotterdam, Netherlands. So given its geostrategic importance, it would seem as though policymakers in Washington would take a much more pragmatic as, a, as opposed to an ideological posture on it. Unfortunately, it seems as though the latter is really what is dictating. And quite frankly, because 
there really is no uh, counterpoint, there's no counter-narrative uh, inside Washington to what is then dominated by the other side. We find then uh, that Iran will probably continue uh, to be seen as a very convenient scapegoat, uh, a very convenient uh, foil uh, for the United States and the region. And, and what's, I think, perhaps more uh, interesting is the emergence of regional players who have so much influence on helping to perpetuate that demonization of Iran. Uh, certainly, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel has made it essentially a central plank of his, uh, uh, his prime ministership and his tenure going back over a decade. Uh, but we also have these two new, uh, re uh, relatively new forces, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, the crown prince of the United Arab Emirates, MBS and MBZ are practically running uh, the countries. They're the de facto leaders of their respective countries. And they have been very, very fervent of trying to uh, have a very robust, uh, a very uh, forceful uh, narrative out of the White House. Uh, part of what seems to be uh, the reason for the, uh, the intensity these days is it seems as though uh, Netanyahu, MBS, and MBZ perhaps are a bit diffident of the 2020 elections, whether there's going to be uh, perhaps a, a Democrat in, uh, in the White House. Uh, all three had uh, quite a bit of aversion to Obama, particularly as he was uh, putting together the, uh, the so-called nuclear deal with Iran. And I think that they want to, something to happen now within the next 16 months because they're unsure of what could happen later. Hmm. Uh, my guests are Peter Trumbor, professor of political science and chair of the political science department at Oakland University, and Saeed Khan, a senior lecturer of Near and Middle East history and politics at Wayne State University. We're talking about the relationship between the United States and Iran, seemingly reaching almost a boiling point last week when the president says we were just minutes away from a military strike against Iran in retaliation for that country shooting down a U.S. drone. Uh, how serious should we be taking this uh, iteration of that relationship? How worried should we be about the idea of a war with Iran? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what you think about the prospect of perhaps going to war with Iran or another country. Do you trust that this president is going to make rational decisions about these kinds of military engagements? Uh, and what do you hope for or fear when it comes to how military might might be used around the globe? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, let's start with Dan in Novi. Dan, what's on your mind? Good, mo good morning, Mr. Henderson. Hey. Um, these gentlemen that you have on your show today are guys that have never even been in fistfights in their life talking about global politics, regional issues, and warfare. They're inept to speak about any issues involving Iran. Um, the Iranians have been classic bad actors forever. And we're not going to go to war with a country of 44 million in mountainous terrain like Iran, as we did with Iraq or any other place, because we just can't bowl over them. But we will eliminate their ability to be bad actors by sinking their Navy like we did in 83, hmm. destroying their Air Force, and many other things that are very easy for us to do that literally only take 10, 12 hours to completely complete. 
It happens, and that's what we do. We are the good guys. And these people have over and over through Islamic Jihad and all their other things that they've done proved that they're bad actors. Everybody has a right to navigate through the Persian Gulf and putting a few limpet mines on super tankers. They'll never sink a super tanker like that. They know what they were doing. They just want to be noticed and have the sanctions removed that are punishing them because yeah. they have a weapons program that we're going to destroy. So, Dan, uh, you know, first of all, I mean, I think the, 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 the way you opened your, your remarks here was probably not not called for. I mean, I don't think you have to have even been in a fist fight to, to be uh, a smart analyst about foreign policy and the way that it unfolds. But uh, I do appreciate your, your, your sharing your perspective here. I, I wonder what you think, though, about why Iran stands out in your mind as a bad actor, uh, perhaps distinct from, from other countries, even in that region. I mean, what is it about Iran that, that rankles you uh, particularly here? The Iranians being Persians are people pre-biblical times. They speak Persian. They are their own people. They have their own right in the region to be what they are. But it's constantly uh, uh, agitation where the Shiites and Sunnis are pushing against each other. You can see proxy states in Gaza, uh, Lebanon, um, wherever it may be. Um, hell, the Sauds are bad actors. They cut a guy up into a seven-piece Kentucky Fried Chicken box and send them out the embassy. Mm. It, it, there's, they're not, none of them are good actors, mm. but we are the cowboys in the world, and when we're surrounded by Indians, we're going to do the right thing. Okay, Dan, I, I appreciate the perspective. Not, I can't say I agree. Uh, Peter and Saeed, I'd, I'd love for you to uh, react to what Dan's saying there. Uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll start, and then I'll, I'll let Saeed uh, add his thoughts. Um, <laughs> It's not that everything that Dan said was was wrong. Um, Iran has been what we would consider a bad actor. Mm -hmm. Iran does support movements and organizations that oppose American interests and target American allies, uh, whether that's Hamas in, in Gaza or um, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, Iran supports militias that are propping up uh, Bashar Assad in Syria. Uh, Iran backs Shiite militias in Iraq that uh, are not particularly friendly to the U.S. or its interests, and Iran opposes key allies of the United States. Um, but there are a lot of countries that engage in, in similarly bad actor behavior, yeah. uh, including close allies of ours, and, and, and Dan mentioned that with Saudi Arabia. Uh, we could look at Pakistan. We could look at a whole array of countries. Um, this question is, I think, is, is a more important one, is that is, is Iran uniquely bad uh, or does Iran represent a challenge to American interests such that we feel that we have to engage them, uh, potentially including up to militarily? And mm. I think that that's a different, that's a different question. Mm. Uh, I, I, would, I would disagree with Dan's assessment that, that we could go in and in a matter of hours, defang Iran in ways that would make Iran no longer problematic for us. Uh, yeah, can we sink their navy? Sure. Uh, can we bomb their airfields? Yes, we can do that. Does that solve the problem? Uh, I would argue that it exacerbates the problem. Hmm. Um, Iran is a country of 80 million, not 44 million, uh, and it's gonna, it would be no pushover, and there's no reason for us to believe 
that any kind of, of I, I guess what Dan would characterize as limited strikes would actually solve any problem rather than make those problems exponentially worse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Saeed Khan, when we come back, I'm going to I'm going to get your reaction to that. But I want to take uh, a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about uh, Iran. We're going to talk a little bit more about sanctions, how they work and whether they are losing their bite against Iran. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. We'll get to more of your calls as well. Steve in Southfield, Robert in Birmingham, Chris in Detroit. Just hang in there. Uh, we'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We're talking this hour about Iran and the United States, the relationship between the two countries, whether we are on the brink of a wider conflict with Iran, a country that we've had really tense and complicated relationship with for a very long time. My guests are Peter Trumbor, a professor and chair of the political science department at Oakland University. Also with us is Saeed Khan. He's a senior lecturer of Near and Middle East history and politics at Wayne State University. Uh, and of course, we want you to join us as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we will work you into the conversation. Before we get back to the phone, Saeed, uh, I want you to follow up on what our first caller, Dan and Novi, had to say uh, about the distinct problem that Iran poses, according to him, uh, to the United States. Is this uh, a, a kind of standout bad actor, as, as Dan says, and some uh, a country that deserves uh, the sort of harsh uh, treatment that uh, President Trump is talking about? Well, if it came down to what was an actual threat, uh, I think North Korea certainly eclipses Iran in that sense. Uh, they not only have nuclear weapons, uh, but they are trained on the United States as we speak. Uh, but Dan seemed to uh, have a particular insight when it came to the region, and his conflation of uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia as all bad actors uh, seemed to be more about uh, perhaps taking issue with Islam and Muslims than anything else. Uh, you know, Peter and I, I, I don't know, Peter, if you were involved in fish, fish fights. I know I wasn't. I, I was actually reading books. Uh, and as a result of it, I'm familiar with the malevolence of the of the intra-Christian wars uh, in Europe, uh, particularly in the 17th century, and uh, what kind of bad actors were involved there. But the, the, the analogy to cowboys and Indians, I think, was quite fitting, because uh, if the United States insists on uh, going to war with Iran, uh, I fear that it might be like Little Bighorn. Hmm. <laughs> That's a great analogy as well, Saeed. Uh, thank you for that. Let's go back uh, to the phones here. Uh, Steve in Southfield. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. You know, just a few minutes ago, as Dan was speaking, I uh, was listening to the show. I had a cable uh, channel on mute and running on the bottom, Kryon or Chiron. Uh, was apparently a, a, treat, a tweet from Trump said, I think the Iranian leadership is not smart, exclamation point. And I thought, geez, here we go again. The entire world is being held hostage by a lunatic hmm. who is not um, 
going to listen to anyone reasonable, rational, philosophical, strategic. Uh, I think it's as simple as he's bound and determined to to uh, burn to the ground a very carefully and thoughtfully prepared uh, treaty, international treaty, that will at least hold off the development and deployment of an ICBM. And, you know, I'm a Navy veteran and patrolled the, the high seas in the international waters and kept uh, the bad actors, as Dan called them, um, you know, at bay. Hmm. But this is so far, I'm having a hard time taking this really seriously because um, Iran poses no immediate threat, and they wouldn't be rattling everyone's cages if the administration hadn't decided to burn the nuclear deal to the ground. Yeah, Uh, Steve, that's that's a really great uh, and sophisticated uh, point of view about what's going on here. Uh, and I think those, those are all great questions that you're asking about why now and why this and why this, uh, this reaction. So I, I really appreciate the call uh, and the perspective. Uh, before we get back to our guests, I want to uh, get another voice in the mix here, Ted in Southfield. Ted, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, the question uh, is, since... Since uh, the United States pulled out of the of the uh, uh, nuclear uh, agreement, um, why hasn't why hasn't there been pushback from the United Nations or other member countries that are still in the agreement? Why hasn't there been pushback against the United States since we are no longer legally part of that agreement? Yeah, great question, uh, Ted. I really appreciate that call. Uh, Peter Trumbor and Saeed Khan, talk about, I guess, the the sort of loner role, perhaps, that uh, the United States is taking here, withdrawing from uh, this, this nuclear agreement, now talking about unilateral strikes against uh, Iran. Is there a potential backlash, I guess, from our allies uh, if we if we keep going down this road? Well, I think there has been, right? Um, when we walked away from the agreement, the, the rest of the parties uh, stated their determination to, to try to make it work without us. Uh, now, the unfortunate thing is the United States has, has sufficient economic clout that we could reimpose sanctions in a way that would actually hurt Iran, and, and it has. But uh, our, our former partners in that agreement have been continuing to work with Iran, as has the international community, to monitor, to monitor its performance, to monitor its compliance. And Iran, uh, again, has, for the most part, up until recently, has complied with all of, all of the, the terms. Um, one of the things that we have seen are, are very few of our allies jumping on board as we have been raising the tension um, and I think that that's telling. I think that we would, in fact, go it alone. And I, and I frankly, I doubt the capacity of this president and this administration to either put together a meaningful coalition of partners to confront Iran and, and, and then lead it in any way that would be effective. So I think that if things get out of hand, it will be us standing on our own with the Saudis and the Israelis in the background cheering us on. Mm. And letting us essentially do their work for them. I think that there are a lot of, of interlocking parts here that we can still 
uh, start to disentangle and, and try to get a sense of all of the various interests that uh, are at play here, not just ours and not just Iran's. Hmm. Uh, Saeed? Yeah, I mean, fully agree with uh, with Peter on that. Just yesterday, uh, National Security Advisor John Bolton was uh, was in Israel uh, trying to uh, motivate a, uh, a trilateral agreement between the United States, uh, Israel, and Russia uh, on the issue of Iran and was uh, quite well rebuked by Russia uh, that declared that uh, Iran is its ally and essentially to stand down. So, so Bolton, uh, again, showed... Uh, a failure of, uh, of accomplishment for what was uh, the, the mission at hand. It's important to remember that Russia, along with China, are two of the P5 in the P5 plus one, uh, the five permanent uh, Security Council members of the United Nations. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, and uh, uh, apropos Ted's question, there does seem to be from some of the other uh, um, uh, signatories to the, uh, uh, the agreement a pushback. And I think it's quite telling that as President Trump travels uh, to the Far East for the G20 uh, summit uh, at the end of this week, uh, as well as with his uh, ongoing negotiations with with China on trade deals, it doesn't appear as though uh, the United States has the ability to leverage Iran, nor does it seem to be the hill that it wants to die on with China when it comes to economic sanctions. True, when it comes to Europe, uh, there seems to be a little bit more deference. Uh, Peter did say that uh, the United States still wields a tremendous level of economic clout. And where the United States can threaten countries with economic sanctions, given the size of the American market at 336 million compared to the Iranian market of 81 million, uh, the mathematics uh, certainly does fall into uh, the American side of the ledger. But for how long it can sustain that is really an open question. Yeah. Uh, before we get back to the phones, I want to switch topics just a little bit and talk about sanctions. Um, uh, talk about what they are, first of all, and how we use them in situations like this one we're in with Iran and whether we've sort of passed the point of usefulness uh, of these sanctions. Well, the United States has had comprehensive economic sanctions against Iran for the last 40 years, since 1979. And, and they have been designed, I think, primarily with the intention of, of encouraging the Iranian people to change their own form of government. Um, and, and we know from past experience that that, frankly, is a foreign policy goal that sanctions cannot deliver. Um, we also know that uh, authoritarian regimes tend to be strengthened as a result of, of sanctions efforts against them. We've seen this uh, with Cuba. We've seen this with North Korea and a handful of others, right, that, that sanctions give authoritarian governments the opportunity, in fact, to clamp down even harder and to blame their foreign enemies for the people's hardship and suffering. Um, so sanctions are, are really not an effective tool to try to bring about the kind of policy change we claim to, to want in Iran. Uh, and I think this is what made the incentive structure of the nuclear deal so, uh, I think, so exciting from the standpoint of sort of thinking about what works and what doesn't work in foreign policy. Mm. That we have spent 40 years using sticks to try to get changes in Iranian policy. Uh, the the Iran nuclear deal offered them carrots for cooperation and carrots for for better behavior. And it was delivering. It was delivering in terms of the policy outcomes that we wanted, 
but also in terms of, of making life better for the people of Iran. So it was it was a win-win on both sides. Mm. So, um, you know, that's sort of my take on on this anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, Saeed, I, w- I wonder what you make of sanctions as a useful way to inspire change in in Iran. And, and I, I would love for you to talk some about the Iranian people uh, and and how they are perhaps quite different in their desires uh, than what most Americans uh, might think they are. Sure. Well, first of all, I think uh, when we're talking about sanctions, particularly with Iran and with the region, it's uh, helpful to take a look at a different element that's related to sanctions, and that is arms sales. And what we find is that as there is all of this pressure that is being imposed on Iran's economy, at the same time, and we've heard this uh, certainly echoed by President Trump uh, regarding the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the, uh, the Saudi journalist in Istanbul last October, that irrespective of whether even Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is responsible, it really comes down to the arms sales. Uh, the Saudi checks don't bounce, and both they and the United Arab Emirates uh, have been uh, purchasing uh, billions of dollars of weapons. And in fact, uh, part of the deal was going to involve Raytheon building uh, high-tech uh, components inside Saudi Arabia. So this was seen as a transactional deal all along. Now, regarding the Iranian people, you're looking at a civilization which is at least 2,500 years old when it comes to its history of monarchy, going all the way back to Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes the Great. Uh, You have a form of nationalism which, irrespective of religion, uh, irrespective of uh, uh, political uh, uh, forms of government, whatever they may be, really does see itself as uh, a very proud uh, society, one that is uh, extremely accomplished, uh, one that has produced a tremendous amount of uh, uh, scientific, cultural, and uh, artistic efflorescence. And there's no better way to uh, call uh, and to cause the Iranian people to rally around the government, uh, the current government, than for a war. We saw this happen during the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 1988, a war that the United States supported Iraq at the time. Uh, here to try to take advantage of a fledgling revolution. It was the hope of the United States and regional uh, Arab countries uh, to try to topple uh, the uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini at that time. Uh, it failed miserably, despite the fact that it uh, had a 1.5 million uh, person casualty toll. Uh, the, the Iranian people are quite resilient, and this is uh, probably going to make them more so. Okay, Peter Trumbor, professor of political science at Oakland University, Saeed Khan, senior lecturer of Near and Middle East history and politics at Wayne State. It was always great to have uh, the two of you here to talk about these issues. Thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Up next, we're going to talk with Washington Post Global Opinions writer Jason Rezaian, who covered Iran from Tehran for years before he was imprisoned by Iranian authorities for 544 days. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined us. We're talking this hour 
about the deteriorating relationship between the United States and Iran. We came just hours, President Trump said uh, last week, from a military strike against Iran in retaliation for that country downing a U.S. drone. How serious is this? How close are we to a more, uh, I guess, active uh, confrontation with uh, the country of Iran. Uh, we have someone with us now who has a unique perspective uh, on this issue. Jason Rezaian is a global opinions writer for The Washington Post and served as the Post correspondent in Tehran from 2012 to 2016. He was also imprisoned by Iranian authorities uh, for 544 days until he was released just this January. Jason Rezaian, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on again, Stephen. Yeah. I appreciate it. Sure. So let's first start with your reaction to the news about uh, Iran shooting down an American drone and this administration's last-minute cancellation of a military strike in retaliation. Is this uh, a particularly tense iteration of the relationship between the United States and Iran, or is this uh, the the administration sort of puffing that up uh, for political purposes? I think it's a bit of both, actually. Um, currently, we are uh, closer to uh, a hot conflict with Iran than I think we have been um, in at least um, the last 25 years. Uh, but um, the reality is there's always tension between Washington and Tehran, uh, and I don't think we can look at these events in a vacuum, right? The way that they're presented to us by State Department, the White House, and frankly, our own media coverage, because there are a few people able to uh, operate from the Kurdish Gulf, it sounds as though uh, the shooting down of the drone uh, just happened magically uh, all of a sudden without any provocation. Well, this has been a, a situation that's been escalating uh, rapidly, over the last few weeks, and especially since the U.S. pulled out of the JCPOA, the nuclear deal with Iran, mm -hmm. um, which was about 14 months ago at this point. So, you know, this is a collision course that, that a lot of people who uh, work on the region, work on Iran, cover Iran in the news media, uh, work at think tanks or, or uh, our professors saw coming uh, a long time ago. Yeah. Um the we had a, a caller earlier in the hour uh, talk about how uh, Iran is what he called a bad actor uh, and a long-standing bad actor in the region and and a country that is uh, you know uh, deserving of you know a, a tough hand uh, from from the United States. Uh, as I said, you have a unique perspective on this, having been imprisoned. Uh, by Iranian authorities uh, for for a very long time. I, I wonder what you make of uh, the idea of that state as a particularly difficult uh, spot in, in the region and a particularly difficult uh, partner to have a relationship for, for the United States. Well, I, I like others uh, before me, would say, yes, Iran uh, has engaged in a lot of uh, bad behavior, bad activity, whatever you want to call it, over the past 40 years. But so have our closest allies in the region. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we're going to take that tone and stance towards Iran, it's incredibly disingenuous of us, hypocritical, 
not to uh, to hold Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, to a similar uh, standard. And we don't. And we know why we don't because of a longstanding relationship with the with the uh, with the kingdom. Uh, first, because of uh, oil relationships. Mm-hmm. Now, because of uh, military sales, weapon sales to, to Saudi Arabia. So yes, Iran is not a good regime. I don't think any uh, government that is guided uh, uh, by religious text uh, is uh, in line with American ideals. Our founders set up this country uh, to have a separation between church and state. Well, Iran doesn't have that. Neither does Saudi Arabia. Neither does the UAE. Neither does Bahrain or any of the other countries that that we uh, we have relationships with and are very cozy with. So, uh, you know, I, I think I'm not here to defend the Islamic Republic of Iran. I'm one of their many victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, my attitude is we have to have some kind of relationship with Iran, irrespective of what kind of government it has. And the odds of it moving in a, uh, a direction that is more democratic more closely aligned with uh, with American interests uh, increases if we have the most minimum uh, contact, which I would say would be, you know, the ability for people to people contact for Iranians to come to the United States. As you know, there's a travel ban. Mm-hmm. We, I think, I spoke to you guys a few months ago with a couple who was able to get around that travel ban. Uh, but you know, thousands upon thousands of Iranians who traditionally would have been able to come to the United States to study work. Uh, or live are being blocked from doing so. And then also commercial ties. You know, uh, the administration makes the case that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps controls the entire economy. Well, that's not true. There are millions upon millions of uh, independently owned small businesses in Iran. We're suffocating those people uh, by putting these sanctions on. And I don't think uh, it will result in a democratization or a freeing of that country. Hmm. Uh, so so the, the idea of sanctions as a way of coaxing uh, the Iranian regime to better behavior doesn't doesn't sit well uh, with you but but talk about what you see uh, when you're in Tehran or other parts of the country uh, the effect of these sanctions on on the people who live there. Well, it's it's several years now since I haven't been uh, out in the streets free in Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, at the time, Iran was under massive uh, sanctions during the, the run-up to the nuclear deal. The Obama administration that put some of the, the toughest sanctions uh, that we've ever imposed on any country on Iran. And the, the, the situation went from one where the, the vast majority of people would be considered middle class to one where there was a shrinking middle class and a very lopsided um, small, super elite, people who had access to government contracts, the sorts of people who were able to skirt the sanctions. And we're seeing that situation played out again, even more extreme this time around. There's growing poverty in the country. There's a lack of uh, access to, uh, to vital medicines and, and, um, and drugs to, to fight cancer and, and, and other diseases. Uh, so, you know, we're helping exacerbate um, what could potentially become a humanitarian crisis. And unfortunately, I think the truth of the matter is that the Iranian regime isn't doing much to help the situation. I mean, their number one priority, 
is to survive. Um, and so, you know, as usual, as has been the case, your previous uh, guest was talking about the, the war between Iran and Iraq in mm-hmm. the 1980s. As is always the case, it's the people of Iran uh, that get the short end of the stick. Mm. They have no friend in their own government. They have no friends in the U.S. government. Uh, so if you were to try to craft um, a productive approach for the U.S. Uh, with Iran, would you continue along this path that the Trump administration has chosen, which is sort of escalation of, of the tension and trying to put on pressure that way? Or uh, would you go in a different direction? And if, if, you, if so, what would the steps look like uh, in that direction? Look, I think that targeted pressure... Uh, makes absolute sense, hmm. but not in the way that we're implementing it. Uh, earlier this week, the, tre- the president signed uh, new sanctions against Iran's supreme leader and entities related to Iran's supreme leader. Well, that is just a, an attack at an 80-year-old man's ego more than it is anything else. Hmm. The reality is that Iran's supreme leader cannot travel outside of his own country. Uh, if he did, he would be in- arrested uh, you know, in relation to uh, terror attacks dating back to the 1980s and 90s uh, that are believed to have been brought out by the Islamic Republic. So he's not going anywhere. So a travel restriction doesn't hurt. Uh, he doesn't hold any assets personally outside the country that we know of. He has a vast control over the, the domestic economy and will continue to do so. So I think targeting uh, people within the regime make sense and targeting their families, hmm. making it more difficult for them to uh, to enjoy uh, the fruits of the free world. Many of the, the leaders of Iran uh, have children who are studying or living here in the United States or in Europe. Uh, why is that possible? Why don't we out these people? Why don't we shame them uh, and send them back to Iran, uh, you know, while others are able to, to come and go? Uh, at will. So, you know, I, I think that the, the, there are other ways to go about this besides targeting the country and, uh, and suffocating uh, the quality of life of normal people. Um, I wonder also uh, what you think is is likely to come next, uh, given the behavior that we've seen from the Trump administration, given the fact that the president said the other day uh, that John Bolton, uh, you know, would want to be at war with everybody uh, right now. Uh, and we know how close uh, he is to the president's ear uh, is this going to get worse in your estimation in the, in the near future? I think it's going to get much worse. Um, I think we will have uh, near misses the one, like the one we had last week. I, uh, I hope that we can avoid uh, an all-out conflict with Iran. I also you know, want to say that uh, you know, this president has a history of uh, removing some of his top advisors very abruptly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, his words uh, about John Bolton haven't been exactly glowing <laughs> in recent days. <laughs> so uh, who knows if we're going to be looking at as hawkish uh, a national security apparatus a month from now as we are uh, at this moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of variables involved. And ultimately, uh, the likelihood is that we will sit down and talk uh, with the Iranian regime. Um, and, you know, work out some sort of 
um, agreement. Is it, will it be as strong as the agreement that the Obama administration uh, was able to, to hammer out, which Trump says is the worst deal in the history of deals? <laughs> we don't know. Uh, but, you know, I think we have to continue to, to ga- engage in, you know, constru- constructive thought experiments, but also engage in discussion. I mean, there is no uh, direct discussion between the U.S. and Iran taking place right now. There hasn't been in over a year. Most of uh, what we see is uh, tweets going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as somebody who uh, is a journalist and spends a lot of time on social media, that is not the best way uh, to de- de-escalate <laughs> emotions and tensions, yeah. right? Uh, so, you know, I-, I would like to see more face-to-face encounters between the, the leaders of two countries, not uh, in the-, the way that uh, the President Trump had photo ops with Kim Jong-un, uh, but, you know, more constructive. How do we get around this impasse? What do we actually want from them? And what do they need in return? Uh, and see if we can come up with, with a, a situation that uh, ultimately will benefit the people of Iran and keep us out of war. Yeah. Okay, Jason Rezaian, global opinions writer for The Washington Post, also served as the Post correspondent in Tehran from 2012 to 2016. It was really great to have you with us here on Detroit Today. Thanks for stopping by. Always a pleasure. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. You're going to want to come back tomorrow when Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson is going to join us. She's heading up Governor Whitmer's new commission to promote opportunities for girls and women in sports. We're going to talk about those opportunities and, of course, the women's soccer team. And we'll recap tonight's first Democratic presidential debate. Don't forget uh, to tune in for that. Uh, I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.